Practical Truths by Archibald Alexander, a dialogue between the culprit and cottager. The Holy Spirit is now evidently striving with you. It is He that has opened your eyes to see your sins, cherish His influences, and in answer to your prayer, humbly trusting in the merits of Christ, He will enable you to believe to the saving of your soul. The man with the withered hand might have cavilled as sinners do now, but he hesitated not. He made the effort, and in making it, found the vigor of his arm restored. So in thousands of cases, while men have renounced their sins and cried for mercy, they have been enabled by the Divine Spirit to believe and receive Christ as He is offered in the Gospel. Collier, oh, that I could believe. Lord, help me. Culpeter, you seem to be in the very case of the man mentioned in the Gospel, who brought his lunatic son to Christ to be healed and said, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Collier, yes, that is my case. Lord, help me to believe. Lord, give me faith. If thou wilt, thou canst make me whole. Culpeter, friend, let me ask you a few plain questions, that it may appear whether or not you believe. And first, do you feel and acknowledge that you are a great sinner and unable to help yourself? Collier, I do. I'm a great sinner, a vile, ungrateful wretch, the worst perhaps out of hell. Culpeter, do you see that sin? Your own sin is hateful and deserving of God's wrath and curse. Collier, I'm as much convinced that I deserve to be sent to hell as that I'm now a living man. Indeed, I do not see how a holy God can do otherwise and send me to hell. Culpeter, here you go too far. Were it not for the atonement of Christ, God could not do otherwise, consistently with justice, than send every sinner to hell. Do you believe that the death of Christ is a sufficient atonement for your sins? Collier, I cannot deny it. Oh, yes, it is a glorious sacrifice. It is of infinite value, that precious blood, which you shed cleanses from all sin. Oh, if I had an interest in this blood, I should be saved. Culpeter, well, you have it. It is yours. You do believe, and therefore your sins are pardoned. Collier, I'm not satisfied with that. I'm afraid something is wanted. I heard you speak of the great joy which you felt when you believed. Should not I experience the same if my faith were of the right kind? Culpeter, there are degrees of faith. There is faith as a grain of mustard seed, and a strong faith like Abraham's, who against hope believed in hope. Now, most commonly in our day, the first exercises of faith are feeble and obscure, but by proper culture it becomes stronger every day. Let me ask you whether you do not approve the gospel method of salvation by grace, and whether you do not renounce all dependence on your own works and merits. Collier, as to my works, I have none, none, good. And I see no fault in the plan of redemption. It is a glorious plan. My soul rejoices in it. It brings glory to God and salvation to the sinner. And I want no other Savior than Christ. Oh, give me Christ, and I want no more. Culpeter, and what think you of the people of God, the true disciples of Christ? Collier, it is my misfortune to know very few true Christians, but I am sure if I should become acquainted with such, I should esteem them the excellent of the earth. 
And I do feel at this moment a tender compassion for sinners. Oh, that I could take them in my arms and bring them to Christ. I desire the salvation of the whole world. Culpeter, friend, my time is out. I have an appointment for a prayer meeting this evening many miles off. Here's a New Testament which I give to you, Collier. Why, sir, I do not know a letter in the book, Culpeter. I want that you should learn. Begin with the first chapter of John. Your wife can aid you, and you will soon be able to read for yourself the wonderful works of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Farewell. The following track on heaven was written by Alexander. Heaven is a reality not seen by eyes of flesh, but made known by revelation and received by faith. Heaven is a rest from toil, trouble, temptation, and sin. Such a rest is very desirable, if it were only a sweet sleep, but heaven is more. It is a state of delightful activity. Every faculty and every affection will find appropriate exercise, and probably latent powers not needed here will there be waked into activity, powers suited to the new condition in which the soul exists. Heaven is full of light. All darkness and doubt are absent. Knowledge will there be clear and will possess a transforming efficacy. Still, knowledge in heaven will be progressing. The pleasure will partly consist in ever learning something unknown before. Heaven is a region of perfect love. All the heart and mind and strength will be exerted in love. And if the power of loving should, in the progress of the immortal soul, be increased a thousandfold, all this increased ability will be kept constantly in full stretch by the loveliness and glory of the objects of affection. Christ is the center of attraction in heaven. From Him radiate the rays of divine glory which enliven, attract, and beautify all the innumerable host of worshippers. Love in heaven is pure, perfect, and reciprocal. He who loves cannot be satisfied without a return of affection. And the more exalted and excellent the character of the person beloved, the sweeter the sense of his favor. Heavenly joy consists in loving with all the heart and in being beloved. As heaven is a society, the members are happy, not only in loving their king, but in mutual love. There will exist no envy, nor jealousy, nor apathy. Every soul will be transparent to every other and all will see that nothing but pure love exists in every heart. Heaven is a place of peace, sweet peace and uninterrupted harmony. All disturbing elements will be left behind. In the symbolical heavens of the Revelation, we read of wars, but in the heaven where saints and angels dwell in worship, war can have no place. The atmosphere of heaven is exempt from all malaria. It is purity itself. All sin and impurity are denied admission into that holy place. Heaven is a place of song. High affections are expressed in celestial music. Oh, how elevating, how delightful the melodies. Heaven is an unchanging state, or all change is advancement in knowledge, in dignity, in happiness. The following track was written for the American Track Society in the last century by Archibald Alexander. It's called The Importance of Salvation. In comparison with salvation, all other subjects are trivial. 
to waste time in the pursuit of wealth or in the chase of sensual pleasure while our salvation is not secure is more than folly, it is madness. What? Would you agree to dwell in the dark dungeon of despair forever and ever? For the sake of living a few years upon earth in a sumptuous house? Would you consent to endure the sting of the never-dying worm and the torment of unquenchable fire to all eternity for the sake of gratifying your appetites and senses for a moment? No man would deliberately make such a determination, yet such is the language which many speak by their conduct. The world is pursued daily at the risk of salvation. The resolution of attending to the concerns of the soul hereafter answers no other purpose than to lull the conscience asleep. Where have we known a person, by virtue of these flattering resolutions, change his conduct? The next day is like the one that preceded it. Every succeeding year passes by like those that went before. No convenient time for repentance and reformation ever comes. Youth soon runs out in the giddy circle of pleasure and amusement. Middle age is completely occupied with cares and business. And old age, if it ever arrives, finds the heart hardened, the habits fixed, and the conscience seared. Death overtakes the unfortunate wretch. He dies as he lived, either goaded by guilt or benumbed with stupidity. He dies and sinks to hell, where there are no amusements to entertain, no business to engage, no error to becloud the mind. To fall into the hands of the living God as an avenging judge is dreadful beyond conception. To be eternally miserable overwhelms the thought, and we turn away from it with instinctive horror. Can you reconcile yourself to such sufferings? Can you dwell with everlasting burnings? Only try the torment of fire for a moment, and you will soon be convinced that the pains of hell are not to be supportable with patience if they are comparable to fire, but they are worse. Remorse and despair are worse, and Nebuchadnezzar's furnace heated seven times. No flames are equal to the raging of unrepented sin, no strokes of any enemy like the taunts of infernal spirits. If you had to endure this punishment only for a limited time, the hope of deliverance might help you to bear up under the dreadful weight of sorrow. But although many support themselves by such a hope here, the miserable in hell have no such alleviation. The darkness which surrounds them is thick and horrible. No ray of light ever penetrates it. No gleam of hope ever mitigates the raging anguish of the lost soul. Consider also that although your sins may not be openly flagrant, yet, as you have heard the gospel and enjoyed many calls and warnings, and also many strivings of the Spirit, these will exceedingly aggravate your misery and make your hell hotter than that of the miserable inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. The more comfortable you are in your worldly circumstances, the more miserable will your condition be. To be cast out from among affectionate friends, to keep company with monsters of depravity, from fine houses, pleasant gardens, fertile farms, downy beds, to be cast into the lake of fire, 
from well-furnished tables and generous wines and cordials to be eternally famished with burning thirst and no gratification ever obtained. No, not so much as a drop of water to cool the tongue. This is hell indeed. Suppose you were doomed to suffer the torment, which a sinner in hell must eternally endure for one hour in this world. Would not the prospect of this doleful hour mar all your pleasures? In the midst of mirth, would it not make your heart sad? Would it not be ever present in your thoughts? You would be unable to compose yourself to sleep or to betake yourself to your necessary business. You would consider yourself as an unfortunate wretch and would perhaps regret that you had ever been born. Your friends would sympathize with you and all around would look upon you with compassion. But if, from an hour, the term of your punishment should be enlarged to a year, what would you do? How would you feel? Suppose you could endure the pain of a fiery furnace for a year without dying or losing your sensibility, and you knew that this was your certain doom, could you be at ease? Could you contain yourself? Would you not disregard all pursuits and enjoyments which the world could propose and would you not take up a continual lamentation of your unhappy case? Would you not call upon all to pity you as the most miserable wretch that ever was born? And would you consider the wealth of a prince, the honor of a conqueror, or the pleasure of an epicure, any compensation for such dreadful sufferings? Would you not despise all these things and say, The more I enjoy these earthly delights and the more I forget the misery which is coming upon me, the more intolerable will be my anguish when it arrives. Should we be thus affected with an hour's or year's continuation of such sufferings as must be endured in hell? And shall we be indifferent to these same torments when their duration will be without end? Oh God, what kind of infatuated beings are we? Surely man of all creatures is the most stupid in those things which relate to his salvation, eternal punishment, eternal fire, eternal destruction. What awful sounds are these? Who can fully understand their import? I extend my views forward to the day of judgment. But this great day, instead of bringing these sufferings to an end, is the date of their beginning and all their terror. What shall be endured before is nothing to what comes after. The fire will then be kindled around both soul and body which will never cease to burn. The sufferings of the soul in a separate state will be like the anticipations of a criminal who is conscious of guilt while confined in a prison before the day of trial. They shall then go away into everlasting punishment. Only put yourself for a moment in the place of one of those who are commanded by the judge to depart, under the vengeance of an everlasting curse. The feeling of mine recoils from such suppositions with such repulsive violence that it is almost impossible to induce men to fix their thoughts steadily on such subjects. But try for once the experiment. Overcome your natural reluctance, and imagine yourself to be in the company that will be driven off by the command of the judge from the awful tribunal into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. May I venture to suggest a few reflections which would probably arise in your mind in such a situation? 
Well, the scene has ended. I now know I feel the misery of my situation. Hope, my last comforter, is eternally fled. Despair has full possession. All is lost, eternally lost. All that I now have is a miserable, accursed existence. Oh, that I could sink into nothing, and thus escape the wrath of my avenging enemy. But I wish in vain exist I must. Hell is my portion. I already feel its overwhelming horrors. I'm, I'm tortured with agonies and rent with pangs which no words can describe. All passions assist in increasing my misery. I see others glorious and happy, but the sight greatly enhances my woe. I feel my envy and malice raging against them and against their God and Savior, but my wrath is impotent, and it recoils upon myself and inflicts new wounds on my tormented soul. Was this the price at which I purchased the world and its pleasures? Oh, wretched fool that I was! We are commanded to go away. Ah, oh, whither can we go? Is there any secure or even obscure retreat for us? No, no, we sink in flames, we go into everlasting misery, we go to be companions of devils, we plunge into the dark abyss, never to rise again, and these bodies are old companions, and sin must be also tormented, they are made strong and incorruptible to bear the part in the unquenchable fire. But we cannot describe the anguish and despair of a lost sinner. The mere possibility of falling into such a state of indescribable anguish ought to fill us with trembling. And so it would were not our minds blinded by the God of this world. Now, listener, do you feel no concern about your salvation? Or have you some method of ease in your mind under these thoughts? I beseech you to consider well what the nature of that resource is. The first thought which occurs by way of relief to your mind is perhaps that these things cannot be so that such torments will never be inflicted by a good and merciful God. This ground appears to many very plausible, and they rest upon it with the greater confidence, because it has the appearance of honoring the character of God, at the same time that it promises safety to themselves. But before you lean on this prop, look well, I beseech you, to its foundation. Consider that before you can derive any rational comfort from this consideration, you must be able to demonstrate that the tremendous denunciations of God's word against sinners are false, or that he will forfeit his veracity and never execute his own threatenings. Wretched indeed is that subterfuge, the safety of which depends on proving the God of truth a liar. No, sinner. God will not deny himself for the sake of your ease. He will not suffer his word to fall to the ground to enable you to realize your vain and impious hopes. He will by no means clear the guilty. Surely, O God, thou wilt slay the wicked. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone. This shall be the portion of their cup. If you have imbibed the pernicious heresy of those false teachers to tell you that there is no future punishment for transgressors, even if they should die in the commission of the most atrocious crimes, if you believe these men who dare contradict the plain declarations of God's word, your delusion will afford you only a temporary relief. It will be like shutting your eyes when borne by an irresistible torrent towards a frightful cataract. 
your own conscience, if it has not lost all sensibility, will intimate to you, too plainly to be misunderstood, that there is punishment reserved for the wicked in the world to come. Lean not, then, I beseech you on this broken reed, which will not only fail to support you, but will pierce you to the heart. But it is more probable that you seek relief from the apprehensions of the wrath of God to come, in a vague hope of the mercy of God, of which so much is said in Scripture. The mercy of God is indeed a sure refuge for sinners, but it is never extended to the impenitent who refuse to forsake their evil ways. If you will repent and believe the gospel, then will the Lord most graciously and freely forgive all your sins. But if you depend on the mercy of God to save you from hell without being saved from sin, you trust to that which has no existence. God will not show mercy to obstinate rebels. The whole tenor of his word assures us of the certainty of this truth. But perhaps you expect and intend to turn from your sinful ways hereafter, and thus bring yourself within the influence of God's pardoning mercy. Well, if you should become a true penitent and humble believer in Jesus, you will be saved. But before you cry peace to yourself from this expectation, I beg you to consider that your continuance on earth is uncertain. What is your life? It is a vapor. We have ocular demonstration that death comes upon many very unexpectedly. And although they had entertained the same hope of future repentance, we have awful reason to fear that it was never realized. They died as they lived and went to meet their judge with the guilt of all their heinous sins upon their own heads. And very often men are taken suddenly away and have not a moment allowed for the last hope of the sinner, a deathbed repentant. And in other cases, reason is bewildered and the feelings are stupefied, so that the person who lived carelessly has no bands in his death. And when it is otherwise, an alarm seizes a guilty person, no help or comfort can be obtained, and he dies in fearful horror and despair. But if you should live for scores of years, you will never see the day when there will not be as many obstructions to your turning to God as there are now, and as many inducements to cleave to the present world. Do you see men commonly forsaken the courses to which they have long been habituated? Or do you observe the disinclination to piety become less by increase of years? You may live to be old and gray-headed, and yet remain unconverted, and go down to hell with a double curse on your head. There is no greater nor more dangerous delusion among men than the procrastination of their conversion. While thousands love their souls in consequence of it, not one ever puts his resolution into practice unless some other influence than his own former purposes operates him. Listener, awake! Eternity is just before you. Heaven or hell will soon be your abode. For the first you know you are not prepared. If you were admitted to that holy place, the exercise and employments of the inhabitants would be no way in accordance with the state of your heart. You love not the service and worship of God here, and death will make no reformation in the sinner's heart. Then you must be excluded from heaven by the necessity of the case unless you acquire new principles and a new state. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. What you intend to do, do quickly, for the time is short. 
while you are halting between two opinions, a door of mercy may be shut forever. Seize the present moment. Break off your sins by repentance. Renounce all confidence in your own good deeds or righteousness, and trust alone in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Whosoever believeth in Him shall not be ashamed. Cry mightily to Him for mercy, and for the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and aid you in every duty. Search the Scriptures daily. Attend on the preaching of the word. Make one among the company who surround the throne of grace and social prayer. Avoid ensnaring company and dissipating amusements. Forsake all known sin and see that you perform those external duties which have hitherto been neglected. If you have wronged or injured any, make restitution or give satisfaction as far as is in your power. Abandon all quarrels and strife with your neighbors and promote piety and good order in your own house by reading the scriptures and calling upon God and requiring all within your gates to observe with reverence the Lord's day. But never think that external duties or attending on means and ordinances, however exact, is an evidence that your soul is saved. Never rest satisfied with your spiritual state until you have evidence in the heartfelt sense of the burden of your sins that you have in truth fled for refuge to the hope set before you in the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, apprehended and received by faith, is the only safe sanctuary for a soul pursued by the demands of a broken law. O oh, man, flee to this dear refuge before the storm which is black and lowering overtake you. Lay hold on eternal life. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, the door of reconciliation is open. Jesus invites you to come to him for rest and promises that he will not cast you out. Yea, complains that you will not come unto him that you may have life. Others are entering in at the straight gate. Why do you delay? Instead of losing by the change, even this world, you will gain a hundredfold. Godliness with contentment is great gain. A disciple. A disciple is a learner, but a learner supposes a teacher. The church is properly a universal school where Christ is a great teacher. The Word of God contains all the lessons which are inculcated in this school. But, as Christ is the sum and substance of the Word, He is not only the teacher, but the subject of the lesson taught. According to that saying of His, This is eternal life, to know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Or that of Paul, You have not so learned Christ, if so be ye have heard Him, and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. Do you ask how we can gain access to Christ to become His disciples? Say not in thy heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. A genuine disciple is not only taught out of the word, but by the Spirit also. External teaching, however correct, is not sufficient. Man needs internal illumination by the Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Not that this divine instructor teaches anything different from the Word, no. He takes up the things of Christ and shows them unto us. He is the Spirit of truth and will guide the disciples into all truth. He reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
But what are some of the lessons learned by the disciple in the school? Number one, the worth of his soul and the value of time. Number two, veneration for the Holy Scriptures as the infallible rule to guide our faith and practice. Number three, our ruined and condemned state, children of wrath even as others, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope and without God in this world. Number four, he convinces the human heart, or rather, gives the soul a glimpse of the indwelling sin, by which it is convinced of total depravity. But what a host of evils, what a fountain of impurity, what a mass of corruption. The heart is found to be deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There is found nothing in it truly good. What can be done? Where shall the sinner fly for relief? Whither but to the house of mercy, to the city of refuge? There stands one with wounded hands widely extended, who invites the perishing sinner to come to him for safety. The guilty soul hesitates, fears this invitation cannot be for one so unworthy. But no other door is open, and the kind entreating voice is still heard. Come. And him that cometh I will in no wise cast out. It ventures, trembling, it advances, it throws itself into the arms of divine mercy, and is graciously received without merit, without upbraiding, becomes a son or daughter by adoption, and if a son, then an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. It learns to prize Christ above all persons and above all treasures. To you who believe he is precious, it values him above all price as a teacher and as a ruler as well as an atoning prince. It learns to roll all its burdens on the Lord and learns to live out to itself by desiring vital supplies from Christ. Day by day, it says the disciple, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, the disciple is taught the beauty of holiness. Moral or spiritual beauty is the glory of heaven. External glory is nothing, but moral divine excellence is the glory of God, comprehending all His divine perfections. To view this excellence is a beatific vision in which the happiness of heaven consists. O oh, glorious state! O oh, blessed abode! Finally, the disciple learns to know the reality and sweetness of communion with God. While many are contented to worship in the outward court, he desires to penetrate into the Holy of Holies, where he can hear the words of the divine oracle and see the resplendent face of Emmanuel. The apostle teaches that the most holy place is a type of heaven, and that surely nothing on earth is more like heaven than intimate communion with God. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kine and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Sinners, welcome to come to Jesus Christ. Our blessed Lord knew how prone convinced sinners are to unbelief as it regards the reception which he is disposed to give them if they come to him. 
therefore he graciously uttered and has left on record this precious encouragement him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out no though your sins are very great the kind redeemer will not cast you out even if that were true which you sometimes think that you are the greatest sinner who ever lived upon earth he will not cast you out his blood cleanses from all sin it is as easy for him to save a great as a small sinner no one was ever saved because the sins were small no one was ever rejected on account of the greatness of the sins where sin abounded grace shall much more abound if your guilt is very enormous a greater honor will redound to that deliverer who plucked such a brand from the burning though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool but is there not one sin which never has pardon neither in this world nor in that which is to come there is but no one who has committed that sin ever desires to come to Christ and even that sin would not be unpardonable if the sinner who was burdened with his guilt should come to him it is not unpardonable because the blood of Christ has not adequate efficacy to remove it but because the miserable blasphemer is abandoned by the Spirit of God to his own malignity and therefore never does nor can desire to believe on Christ Christ will not cast you off because you have long continued to sin against God, though it be even to gray hairs and the decrepitude of old age. It is indeed a wicked thing to continue one day in rebellion against the King of Heaven, and no one can calculate the debt of guilt incurred by spending a long life in continued acts of transgression. But however long you may have continued in rebellion, and however black and long the catalog of your sins, Yet, if you will now turn to God by a sincere repentance and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall not be cast out. He that cannot lie hath declared him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I heard a preacher declare from the pulpit that there was no example in the Bible of anyone being converted in old age, but he was undoubtedly under a mistake. Was not Manasseh one of the wickedest men who ever lived brought to repentance in old age? The ages of those converted on the day of Pentecost and other times are not given. It is enough for us to know that the aged no more than the young are excluded from the free invitations of the blessed Savior. He invites all the laboring and heavy laden, and of course those who are burdened with the infirmities of declining years as well as of unnumbered sins. Aged sinner, you are not excluded from mercy by any word of God in the whole book of divine revelation. God has set before you an open door which no man has a right or power to shut. If you should be shut out, it will be by your own unbelief and not for want of a warrant to come. Enter then without delay or hesitation. None can less afford to delay than the aged sinner. Now is the time, now or never. You have, as it were, one foot already in the grave. Your opportunities will soon be over. Strive then, I entreat you, to enter in at the straight gate. But do you ask whether a man may not outlive his day of grace and be given over to judicial blindness before life is ended? Undoubtedly he may. But as I said before, such a one, I believe, is never found inquiring what he must do to be saved. The devil often tempts aged sinners and others too to believe that it is now too late for them to repent that the time of their visitation has gone by, and that there is no hope for them. And many miserable souls are long held entangled in the snare, 
He may even quote scripture to prove that there is a boundary which, when passed, all hopes of salvation is to be relinquished. But as long as we are in the body, we have the overtures of mercy made to us by the authority of God, and whether we be young or old, he that cometh, Christ has declared, shall not be cast out. Take him in his word. Venture on him. If you stay away, you must perish. And you can but perish if you go. But see, the golden scepter is held out. This affords full assurance that if you draw near and touch it, you shall live. Some are convinced that there is salvation in no other but Christ the Lord, yet they hesitate to come because they feel themselves to be so vile and unworthy. They cannot be persuaded that so great and holy a being as the Son of God will look with favor on creatures so abominably polluted and stained with iniquity. Such feelings as these very naturally arise in the minds of persons made sensible of the sinful defilement of their nature. But they are most unreasonable when we take into view the character of Jesus Christ and the errand on which he came into the world. If he had become incarnate and had died on the cross only for the benefit of the pure and righteous, then this excuse for not coming to him would have some validity. But when we know that he bears the character of a savior of sinners, that his name was called Jesus by the angel who announced his birth, because he should save his people from their sins, when we consider his repeated declaration that he came to seek and to save the lost, not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, and that he exhibits himself as a physician, not of the whole but the sick, we must pronounce this objection most unreasonable. If you are not a sinful, polluted, helpless, and miserable creature, this Savior would not be suited to you, and you would not be comprehended in His gracious invitations to the children of men. But the deeper you are sunk in sin and misery, the greater reason you have for coming to one who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. If you were covered with leprosy and a fountain was opened for washing away every sort of uncleanness, would you stay away because you were so polluted? Or if deadly sick, would you refuse to apply to the physician? The awakened, convinced sinner is the very one to whom Jesus especially directs his attention, and it is a preposterous thing for such to delay coming under the delusive hope of making themselves fit. This they never can do, and if they could, they would not need a Savior. What? Will you wash yourselves in a muddy pool to prepare for being cleansed in a pure fountain? But someone may be ready to say, I'll admit that none ever can come to Christ until they experience conviction of sin, but I have no conviction or none worth mentioning. My heart is so blind that I can perceive nothing clearly, and my heart is so hard that what I do see to be true I cannot feel. Oh, if I could experience some tender relenting, if I could get this adamant heart broken into contrition, if I could even feel pungent pain or alarm on account of my sins, my case would not appear so hopeless. But how can I come to Christ with this blind and stupid heart? Now, my friend, I beg you to consider that this blindness and unyielding hardness is the very core of your iniquity. And to be convinced that you are thus blind and stupid is true conviction of sin. If you had those feelings which you so much covet, they would not answer the end of conviction, which is to show you how sinful and helpless your condition is. But if you felt as you wish to feel, you would not think your heart so wicked as you now see it to be. And the truth is that you are now in a better situation to come to Christ than you would 
be if you had less conviction of the hardness and stubbornness of your heart. The use of conviction is to show you your need of a Savior and to set clearly before your mind your utterly helpless and hopeless condition in yourself. And that a holy God would be perfectly just in leaving you to your own fruitless efforts and in punishing you forever for your sins. Let not your conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Take words, therefore, and go immediately and fall down before him and say, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Confess the righteousness of the sentence which condemns you and accept the punishment of your sins as just. Cry with Peter when sinking in the sea, Lord, save, I perish. Or with the blind man, O thou son of David, have mercy on me. Or with the Syrophoenician woman, Lord, help me. Or with the penitent publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Say like the royal penitent, my lips with shame, my sins confess against thy law, against thy grace. Lord, should thy judgment grow severe, I am condemned, but thou art clear. Yet save a trembling sinner, Lord, whose hope still hovering round thy word would light on some sweet promise there, some sure support against despair. But here is another poor soul, more bowed down than any which we have considered. It is an awakened backslider. This man verily thought that he was a true Christian, and under that impression applied for admittance into the church, and was received and for a season seemed to run well. But by the snares and baits of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and insidious lust of the flesh and the pride of life was by degrees seduced from the paths of piety. After a while the profession of religion was laid aside as an inconvenient thing, since which time until lately he has been sinking deeper and deeper into the spirit of the world which lies in wickedness. But recently, by a sore visitation of affliction, his conscience has been awakened to a consideration of his woeful state, and he inquires with the most earnest solicitude whether there is any ground of hope for such a backslider who has sinned much more egregiously since he has made a profession of religion than he ever did before. Now to such a one I feel authorized to say, Christ invites even backsliders like you to come and be saved. I find no clause excluding the returning backslider, guilty as he is in the sight of God. He says in regard to this man, as well as others, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.